So Proverbs chapter 9. We've been going through this portion in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Tonight we'll get to the last section of this first uh, part of the book. Uh, In two weeks when we get together we'll be going into what we usually think of with with Proverbs. These short sayings that pack a lot of punch. Uh, We've seen all throughout these chapters this battle going on between wisdom and the seductive woman. Uh, that you could refer to just as sin. And so today the final admonition of this war on words will take place. A tale of two banquets actually. And one leading to life, the other leading to death that's laid out before us. And so let's go to verse 1 of chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out the seven pillars She has slaughtered her meat, and she has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. And so you could refer to these first two verses as wisdom's preparation. You see in verse 1 that she's built her own house. And the idea is it's been at her own expense. It's something that she has done herself. And notice the she's hewn out seven pillars for her house. Now the average house back then, a very wealthy house, would usually have no more than about three pillars. And so when it says seven, of course, that's a number of completion or perfection. And the idea is that this woman has hewn out a house of seven pillars. It's a strong house. It's a beautiful house. It's a powerful house uh, or a powerhouse, if you will. It It is perfection. And she has done it herself. Notice in verse two also, she slaughtered her own meat and mixed the wine, most likely with spices, honey, and herbs. And this was to make it taste uh, better, to be more enjoyable. And she, the idea is that she desires to bless us. She desires to bless us. She desires good things for us, this woman wisdom that's been personified for us the last couple weeks together. And she's furnished her own table. The table is spread and it's ready for us to partake. Now, when you look at this, what is she doing? Most commentators believe that this is probably a dedication of her house. In Bible days, sometimes they would have a a party to celebrate the dedication of a home. And probably the home of all homes, if you remember in 1 Kings, when Solomon had completed the temple of God, what did they do? They held a dedication to the Lord and a great big feast. And, And when you look at Judaism in general, the Old Testament, it's full of feasts, isn't it? Now, take a step back for a minute and just think about that for a moment. God instituted all these feasts in the Old Testament. What does that speak about the Lord? When you think of a feast, it's a celebration. It's a time of joy. It's a time of festivities. It's a time of rejoicing. Isn't that the heart of our Lord? If you have a dead religion that's devoid of joy, we're going to talk about this on Sunday, that's not Christianity. That's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a God who instituted feasts for Israel to celebrate. And we know as believers, all those feasts pointed to who? They point to Jesus. And so he's a God who wants to celebrate. He wants to bless us with good things. He wants us to enjoy him, right? And so wisdom has endured all the cost for this feast. The house, the food, the table. And... In this culture, eating a feast with others, there was something that was very significant about it that sometimes I think we lose today in our culture. To eat a feast with someone or to sit down and dine with someone, 
And to share from the same food was to become one with that other person or those other people. And so maybe you would take a piece of bread and they would all take a piece of that bread and so they would all be eating from that common loaf. And the idea is that everyone would then would be, become one with one another. And so we see the Lord to the Jewish people instituting these dietary laws in the Old Testament. And one of the functions of that dietary law was separation. It was separating Israel from the world, from the pagans who worshipped other gods, and, and many times feasted as a form of idolatry. And so the Jewish people, they were separate. They, had, they were kosher today, we would call it. They would eat things that were separated by the Lord so that they would be seen as separate unto him. Now, when you fast forward that and you see Jesus in the New Testament eating with sinners and tax collectors, people who were notoriously evil, we'll say, and he was sharing a meal with these people, what did the average Jewish person say? Oh, wait a minute. What did the religious people say? What's he doing? Do you not know who you're eating with? The implication is he's becoming one with these people. Now the beautiful thing about the gospel is that when Jesus touches a sinner, he doesn't become a sinner. He makes the sinner righteous, right? See, we don't change him, he changes us. And so as he dined with these people who were notorious sinners, he wasn't changed, but they were. And that is such a, a wonderful picture of communion. You know, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here um, on Sundays once in a while, it's a picture that when you would have that one loaf of bread that represents Jesus' body, and each person would take from that loaf, we're all feeding upon that one loaf together. And it's a picture of our unity with Christ and our unity with one another. And that's the, the implications of Old and New Testament feasting is there's this oneness, there's this communion, there's this unity that takes place. And the picture before our eyes is a God who is calling his people to dine with him. Isn't that awesome? That the Lord wants to dine with us. He wants to commune with us. I remember early on as a believer, I met a, a pastor. I was, I was in college and I remember the pastor was just sharing with me about his busy schedule. And he, he said that, you know, every day at lunchtime, he set aside a half hour to just dine with Jesus. I thought that was neat. You know, just him and the Lord, just feasting and enjoying that meal in the presence of his Savior. And so the Lord is calling all people to dine with him. And ultimately, he's done that through the gospel. He's called all people to himself. He's covered the bill. He's paid the price, as woman wisdom has here in verses 1 and 2. As we look at verse 3... She has sent out her maidens, and she cries out from the highest places of the city, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat my bread, and drink the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness, and live, and go in the way of understanding. Now we might refer to this now as wisdom's invitation. We already saw wisdom's uh, preparation. And now we see wisdom's invitation. In verse 3, she sends out her mercenaries, these maidens, out to proclaim the invitation to all the people. She and they speak, notice, from the heights of all for all to hear. She is at a place where everyone can hear this invitation. This is, again, God's heart. He desires all men to repent, come to repentance, to come to the knowledge of his son. 
And so she speaks so that all can hear. In verses 4 through 6, we see the message that they proclaim. And specifically, verses 4 and 5, the specific invitation to come. And notice this is not a stationary invitation. In other words, woman wisdom is not just sitting back in her house that she's erected and hoping that people will come and join her for this feast. No, she sends people out. She sends these maidens out into the highways and byways to invite people in to dine with her. And isn't that true of the Lord himself? He goes out, he seeks out the lost. He leaves the 99 sheep and he goes after that one precious lamb that's lost, its own, gone on its own way. You know, what, what a precious parable our Lord said of those 99 sheep and the one lamb that's lost. I'll never forget one time when I was just meditating on that. And I, I was a new believer. And I'd just fallen into sin. And I remember reading that passage of scripture, how Jesus left the 99 and he went after that one that was lost. And I remember realizing I'm that one. I'm that one that Jesus left the 99 for. He cared about me personally. And he was willing to go seeking after me. And he was willing to go seeking after you. That's his heart. We serve a Lord. We serve a God who is not just stationary. He's not just sitting in the heavens waiting for us to hopefully make a good choice. Rather, he's, he's out seeking us. In fact, isn't that a ministry of the Holy Spirit? He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That shows that he is active, even in the hearts and minds of sinners. People who have not received Christ as their Savior yet. Hopefully you can look back at your life before Christ and see the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's hard even to define that moment of salvation because you can see the Spirit's working in your life even before you made that commitment to Christ. Because God is after us. He's after our hearts. He desires us. He loves us. He seeks the lost. He doesn't wait for us, praise the Lord. And we are told to turn in here and to come. And I want to note something with this. To turn in... One must therefore acknowledge his or her inadequacy, right? Because by turning in wisdom's direction, they're acknowledging that they are simple and in need of understanding. Isn't that who he told to come in? He said, if you're simple, come on in. Meaning if you're naive. If you're lacking understanding, I want you to come in and dine with us. And so if you actually make that turn and you decide to come into this feast, you're making an acknowledgement. I need help. I need a savior, if you will, right? It might be today like saying, I'm admitting my sin. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. And I need to humble myself before God and realize that truth. And so we see in verses 4 through 7, or 4 through 6, that invitation that wisdom has provided. Ultimately, the Lord has provided. Now, verse 7, he who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. Actually, let's go back to verse 6. I just want to point something out in verse 6 before we move on to verse 7. Forsake foolishness and live, and go in the way of understanding. Now I want to note in verse 6. Notice this is a message of repentance. It's a message of repentance. In other words, wisdom is telling us to change direction here. 
to turn from sin, to forsake foolishness, to forsake the people, places, and things that have got us going in all the wrong direction, and to turn to the Lord. Isn't that what we call repentance? And so we see here a message of repentance in order to come and dine with the Lord. Now here's a question as we do get into verses 7 through 9. What might keep someone from admitting his or her need for outside help from God? From admitting that one is a sinner as opposed to maybe others who need to repent. What would keep someone from really embracing this call of wisdom or if you will the gospel? What keeps someone from that? And we're going to see in these next three verses the answer to that in verse 7 through 9. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. And he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. So remember, what was that that, that question? What keeps someone from admitting that they're a sinner, that they need the Lord? Notice he points out here the scoffer versus the wise man person. And the scoffer is proud. See, their pride keeps them from receiving wisdom's plea. Perhaps they say, I'm not like those religious people. Did you ever hear someone talking about religion as a crutch and saying it's only for weak people? Well, the reality is we're all weak. And I'll tell you what, from personal experience, if Jesus is a crutch, then I'll take two of them. Because I've understood that Jesus is so much greater than any religious philosophy or system. He is worthy. He is amazing. He's the God that we just sang about who tells us that he loves us. And no one can separate us from that love. And if that's for weak people, praise the Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us we can actually rejoice in our weakness. Paul said, you know, it was in his weakness that he found God's strength, right? that it was perfected in his weakness. And so we can boast in our weakness, not because of anything in of us, but because we serve a God who is so much greater than any weakness that we possess. No matter what we've done, no matter where we've gone, no matter, no matter what we've done things to, to um, the Lord's love is greater than any weakness that we may have. And so their pride also causes them to disdain outward sinners as well sometimes. You ever meet a religious person who looks at people who in outright sin and just can't stand them? And so they don't want to maybe embrace the message because it lumps them together with all other sinners. And they say, well, I'm not like those people, whoever those people are. But the reality is we all fall short of the glory of God. And we all are like everyone else. You know, it's kind of like, uh, and, and Jason would appreciate this, who's a, a pilot. You know, if you're flying, let, let's say you're in New York City. And let, if you're walking in the city and you, you see the different buildings and you see some buildings are taller than others. And you have the skyscrapers, you have three-story buildings. When you're on the ground level, you can tell the difference between the height of those buildings, Right. But when, when you're up in the air, the higher you get, what begins to happen to the height of those buildings? It begins to even out. And it's the same way with sin. We may look at other people from the ground level and say, well, I'm not like this person over here. I'm not like that person over there, man. That, they're the Empire State Building of sin. But when you have that perspective from above, you realize all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
that when God looks down apart from the work of his son, it's a world full of sinners. But it's a world that he loved, right? And that he gave his only begotten son. It's not the world that he just cursed. He could have just cursed this world. But he didn't. He loved the world. He gave his son. And so the person might say in their proud heart, are you calling me a sinner? And the idea is that it ultimately leads to a negative reaction. And notice the contrast in these three verses between the wise person and the proud or the scoffer. You see, as we look at this wise person in verse 8, rebuke a wise man and he will love you, he's not wise because he's wise in and of himself. It's not like he was born this way, being wise. Why is this man wise? Because he understands his need for God's intervention. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. These things imply that the wise man has issues, right? He needs instruction. He needs a rebuke. You ever need a rebuke? I need a rebuke once in a while. But the question is, what's my response to that rebuke? The wise man isn't perfect. I like that. Because I look at my life and I say, wow, Lord, I have such a long way to go when I compare myself to Christ. But the wise man understands his need for the Lord and his mercy. And so you give this wise man instruction and what? He'll still be wiser. Teach a just man and he'll increase in learning. In other words, he hasn't arrived yet, right? He still will be wiser as you continue to teach him and guide him and rebuke him even. It's, it's sort of like an artist. There was a guy in 2500 BC who said this. He said, the limits of art are not reached. No artist's skills are perfect. And if you've ever met an artist, you understand there's this, there's an evolution that takes place within an artist's life. It starts out very crude. Maybe you can think of a two-year-old and the two-year-old's artwork. And as that artist matures and that artist begins to dive into different forms of maybe painting or drawing, there's this evolution that takes place within every artist. And no artist has arrived. And it's the same way with us as children of God. We all are growing. We're all being transformed. We're all being conformed to the image of Christ. And so here's a question that I want us to think about. What is lacking in the scoffer's heart. Because we saw in verse 7, if you correct a scoffer, you get shame for yourself. And if you rebuke him, or the wicked, it, it only harms you. Why is this person's heart this way? What is lacking in the scoffer's heart? I believe that is answered in verse 10. And this is a familiar verse for us who have been looking at Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What are they lacking? They're lacking a proper perspective of God. They're lacking the fear of the Lord. Or if you want to put it this way, they're lacking reality. Because if these people really understood the person of God, if they understood his power, you ever be in the midst of a powerful thunderstorm? And just feel so little and weak. Think of how minute that thunderstorm is compared to the raging power of Almighty God. Who spoke the universe into existence. 
how majestic he must be. How unfathomable is his glory. I mean, even as believers, we, can, we can't even wrap our minds around the infinite glory of God. His utter holiness. That if we in this body even dared to step even remotely close into his presence would just be destroyed. See, what the scoffer is missing is reality. He's lost reality. He's lost a proper view of God. Because if he had a proper view of the Lord in his nature, his natural response would be fear. Reverence. Holy reverence for a holy God. And listen, I believe this is one of the great issues when it comes to, even to the church today and our message in presenting the gospel. So often I hear Christians who start out right away with the love of God. And they, they make it almost seem like God is desperate. Oh, God wants to forgive you. Well, it's true God wants to forgive you. But if you start with just the love of God, then it seems like he's just a helpless, desperate lover in need of some companionship. And God's love then appears no different from human love, right? And when you say, well, God wants to forgive you, then it just becomes like someone else wants to forgive you. You don't see the difference between God's forgiveness and man's forgiveness. But if we begin our gospel message with God, His holiness, His righteousness, His nature, the more you understand who He is, then all of a sudden sin becomes wickedness. And we begin to see our sin for what it is. And we see our need for God's remedy for our sin, right? It's kind of like if you went to a doctor and the doctor said, yeah, you know, you got this condition. Here's some pills, take them. If that's the way that the doctor described your condition, especially if you don't really like medication, how likely would you be to take those pills? But if the doctor was to lay out to you your condition and he said, this is what you have. This is what's going to happen to your body. This is what's going to take place within you. Your organs are going to start shutting down. You're going to stop breathing properly. Your eyes are going to start, you know, bulging out. There's going to be blood and guts coming out of every, you know. As he begins to describe this condition for you and he says, the ultimate and the prognosis of this condition is death. Oh, but there's a cure. Now how likely are you going to take that medication when he offers you that medication? See, we need to start with the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of knowledge. Understanding who the Lord is. When you're talking to someone about Jesus, we want to get to the love part, right? In fact, the more you understand the holiness and righteousness of God, the more amazing His grace is then. Because you realize His forgiveness is not just a man forgiving another man saying, don't worry about it, I'll forget it. No, this is a holy and a just God who's wiped our sin away. He's washed it. He's cleansed it. He's nailed it to the cross of Christ. And the good news becomes great news when we understand the nature of God. And His love and grace becomes amazing. And so the fear of the Lord, that's what this man is missing. And when this, this scoffer hears this invitation to come in and dine, this invitation to the scoffer, it's a rebuke because he understands, I have to turn. You're implying that there's something wrong with me. Well, yeah, that's the gospel message. The gospel starts with the fact that God is holy 
and we're not. And there is something wrong with us, right? We have a sin problem. We have a self problem. And it destroys us from within. It's not, it doesn't have to destroy us from without. It destroys us from within. And the scoffer doesn't understand that. The scoffer is lost and deceived. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied. And years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you will bear it alone. Notice the individual consequences related to our response to wisdom's message. If we reject God's wisdom, if we reject ultimately his word and his gospel, there will be consequences because there will be a day of judgment. The Bible talks about this all throughout from Genesis to Revelation. There is a coming day of judgment where man will meet his maker. And many people say, well, that's not going to happen. And we push this knowledge outside of our heads that someday I'm going to have to give an account for my life. I'm going to have to stand before a just and a holy God. And you know what? I'm not going to be able to point fingers on that day. I'm not going to be able to blame people for the sin in my own life. And that's, I think in our society, we do a good job of passing the buck, don't we? We do a very good job of pointing the finger at other people and making excuses and justifying and rationalizing and all those things that we do uh, as sinners. And we forget that at the end of the day, I will stand before God Almighty at his throne and give an account to my life. And here in verse 12, we see that it all comes down to you and what you do with the invitation, right? If you scoff at it, then you will bear it alone. But if you're wise, ooh, now you're wise for yourself. You're going to benefit from being wise. You're going to benefit from those rebukes that the gospel and the word of God tells us. And so in verse 13, now we're going to switch sections here a little bit. Verses 13, a foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. For she sits at the door of her house on the seat by the highest places of the city. Okay, so we're going to see here a competing banquet. And it's competing actually with God's banquet, right? <laughs> it's like two banquets on the same street. And this woman, who formerly we referred to as the seductress, is now actually referred to as folly. Because it's what she is, it's what she does, and it's what she becomes. And that's all, all sin ultimately leads to folly. Notice it refers to her as simple, meaning she's naive. And literally, he's just going to unpack it. She knows nothing. She doesn't understand her nature. She doesn't understand her destination. She's living for the here and now. And that's all she's concerned with. Literally, she is the blind, as we'll see. She's the blind leading the blind. And she's no better. We'll also notice there's going to be a parallel between her message and that of wisdom's message. And isn't that true in general about sin, but also about the enemy? You realize the enemy is just a copycat. And he copies everything that the Lord does. He really doesn't come up with anything new. But he takes what God does and then he tries to copy it. Kind of like, remember the magicians in Moses. 
when Moses would perform the signs in Egypt and then the magicians would come and they would perform certain signs. But of course, there's a, there's a limit to what he can do. God is so much greater. Please understand that when you look at wisdom and folly or when you look at the Lord and, the, and, and Satan, they're not equal opposites. Okay? God created everything. <laughs> he is so much greater. It's not like this battle between good and evil and we're hoping that good's going to win the battle. No, God has already won the battle. As Christians, we're fighting from a winning position. Jesus won at the cross. It is written, uh, it, he said it is finished, right? He's made a spectacle of principalities and powers. And he's waiting now at the right hand of the Father till his enemies be made his footstool. And so the Lord and Satan, or wisdom and folly, they're not like equal opposites. No, God is so much greater. His word is so much greater. His banquet is so much greater. That's what we're going to see as we look at this fake banquet. If, if you want to even call it a banquet, you know. It's like the world's way of partying. It's a cheap imitation of God's feasts. Of God's celebration. Of celebrating good things, right? Those of you who were in the party scene before. And then you got saved and you began to fellowship with believers. What would you rather have? I know what I'd rather have. I remember those days in the parties. And you thought that's where life was. And then you wake up the next day not remembering anything. And the, the fear, the remorse, the regret. Oh, but the fellowship of believers. The genuine love of other Christians. I'll take the real thing any day. Because God, uh, God's stuff is so much better than, than follies. And so we're going to see this cheap imitation. Notice she sits at the door of her house, verse 14. And when it says she sits, it implies literally that she's on a throne or a place of honor. Now, the average person in this day, please understand, they didn't have chairs. You know how the chair that you're sitting on right now? Really nice chairs. They're cushioned and everything. The average person in Solomon's day did not have a nice cushy chair like you're sitting on right now. If you were lucky, you'd have a stool or a bench. The very well-to-do might have a nice cushion that you'd lay on the floor and sit. And if you, even you, and one commentator said, even if you're, we, you were at a fancy ballroom, there would only be one chair, if that, for the most special person, I guess, to sit on, right? In fact, sometimes when teachers would graduate to become professors, they would actually give them a chair because they were considered now to be seated up in education. Um, it was a place of honor. They were, had elevated status, right? And so she's seen here in a place of honor. She is the revered teacher, if you will. And she speaks also for all to hear. She's on the seat by the highest places of the city. And her message, verse 15, to call those who pass by, who go straight on their way, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Notice similarities, copycat. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. And so she calls out those who are on their way. I think what's implied by the text is that these people, these simple people, have no intention at this point to turn her way. But she catches them off guard. She catches them by surprise. And what's her tactic? Her tactic is to get their attention. See, they might be thinking of anything as they're on this way past her, as she's seated there. But her goal at this point is to get 
eye contact or to listen to what she's saying to them. She's trying to get their attention off of the things of God, off of the voice of wisdom, and onto herself. Because she understands if she gets your attention, now all of a sudden she's got you stopped and you will begin to listen to what she has to say. And this is dangerous, right? What do we do as believers? The moment we get that coming at us, we need to, if it's internal, we need to cut those thoughts off right away. If it's external, we need to keep it moving. We don't want to just stand in place and engage with the enemy, so to speak. Because at this point now, that's what Eve did with Satan. She got into that conversation with him, which led to her doubting God's goodness, doubting God's word, doubting consequences for sin. And it led to sin and it led to death. And so the story doesn't change. It's the same story played over and over and over again. Just different faces. Same game, different players. And so her tactic is to call our attention. She doesn't, notice she doesn't have the choice foods that wisdom had. I like that. She doesn't have the good stuff. She has to try to make her cheap imitation look good. Because all she has, according to the scripture here, is what? She has stolen water and she has bread. She has water and bread. What's that compared to the feast that wisdom offered us? Slaughtered meat, wine, and she's furnished her table, right? It doesn't compare to what wisdom offered us. But she has to make it enticing. So what is her tactic? Well, we've seen before in the previous weeks, she uses enticing words, doesn't she? And here she says that things are forbidden and in secret. Isn't there something about our nature that, that there's something about that forbidden fruit? Again, it hasn't changed throughout all these years since Eve and Adam. There's something about that forbidden fruit that just captures our imagination and our hearts. There's something within us that if you say don't, sin within us wants to do. And if you say don't look, we want to look, right? Now, I kind of gave it away right now. Sometimes I think it's funny. If I was to tell you, whatever you do, don't look back at the door over there. And you didn't know the context of why I said that. And if I just said right in the middle of a sermon, no one look back. Everyone here would be wondering, why did he tell me not to look back, right? Maybe, maybe someone here would maybe drop like a tissue or something and you know, do the quick look-see. Because there's something within us that's forbidden fruit and she tells us that there's something pleasurable about that, right? Stolen water is sweet. Now, water, we've seen as we've gone through Proverbs, it's a form of sex, of sexual sin, ultimately, of not drinking water from our own cistern. So it's stolen water. It's having sex outside of marriage. It's the seductress again. What she doesn't tell you is who is that water stolen from? See, sin becomes depersonalized. It strips away people of their identity. And it just becomes about the thing, what we want. It's not telling you who this person's husband is or who this person's wife is. It's not telling you how that person has sacrificed and cared for this person and provided for this person. It's just telling you what you want to hear. Stolen water is sweet. There's something about it. And bread eaten in secret, oh, that's pleasant. You're, you're, you're missing out. I know there's that other banquet down the street or this, this, this woman has prepared this, you know, whatever, this feast or whatever. But, oh, but I got really good stuff in here. If you'll just turn my way. 
And we see in verse 18 the outcome of folly. Same outcome as Eve. But he who does not know, but he does not know, that's the man, the simple man who entered into her house, he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. Her banquet promises pleasure but leads to death. And that's where folly goes. Now, in closing, I just, I, I can't help but think about this. Remember when Jesus spoke of the parable of the Great Supper? And he sends out his servants to come and invite the people in. He says, come for all the things are now ready. And do you remember they, they had a bunch of excuses. They didn't come. One person got married. Other persons had other things that they were doing. They were too busy. They were too caught up with the pursuits of this world. And they had a bunch of excuses. And so the master was upset. So what did he do? Did he stop the banquet? Did he say, that's it? I'm not having a banquet anymore? No. The master loves to enjoy that company and that feast and that fellowship. And so he ends up sending his servants out. And he sent them out. He said, go quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And still we see there was room. And so he sent them out to the highways and hedges, compelling them to come in so that his house would be filled. Right? Now we know in the context that was Jesus speaking to the religious Jewish leaders who rejected his message. And so he would end up going to the outcasts of Israel. And he would end up going to the Gentiles. Right? But ultimately, I want us to understand this is God's heart. He's the one who's thrown the banquet. He is, ultimately, the, the woman wisdom is a picture of our Father who desires for us to dine with Him, to have communion with Him, to have fellowship with Him. And there's only two banquets. Please understand this. There's the banquet that the Holy God has paid for Himself, whom he sent his only begotten son to live in flesh and blood, live a perfect life, and die on a cross for the sin, not of his own, but of yours and mine. He paid the price as woman wisdom paid the price for her banquet. And his message is for us to turn from our sin, turn from our wicked ways, and turn to him. And to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's his invitation. That you can have forgiveness of sin no matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. You might say, well, you know, I, know, I understand some people here, they've, they've, you know, they've sinned a little bit. But my sin is just so much more than anyone even realizes. I'm so ashamed. His grace is sufficient. When, he, when Jesus died on that cross, he died for the sin of the world. And that includes you. And that includes me. And his invitation is to come. And it's a gift. It's free. Right? Notice woman wisdom. She did not charge. There was no cover there. You didn't have to go and give her a slider five bucks. Ten bucks. You didn't have to know someone. No, the invitation was to everyone. If you'll just come. If you'll just turn from your sin. And that's the invitation that God has given Christians to proclaim to all the world. And it's the message that he has for each of us individually. Remember, it comes down to the individual.
But there's a second banquet, and that's a banquet of worldly pleasure. And many put off their decision for Christ because they want to enjoy life for a while. They want to enjoy sin for a season. But here's the catch with that banquet. You see, we see in verse 18 that this guy who went down that path, he did not know that the dead were there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. You see, it caught him by surprise. He thought he had more time. He was just out enjoying life for a season. And what he didn't realize is that his season was over. And there would be no more seasons. There would be no more chances. How many people have heard a message of the gospel and said, yeah, someday. And unfortunately, that someday never comes. And so the question that every single one of us has to answer, it's about the individual now, is which banquet am I willing to go to? Am I willing to feast on God's eternal banquet that he's provided through Christ, free of charge? Or am I trying my own way? Or maybe I'm the scoffer who says, I don't need this religious stuff. I don't need this Jesus person. The reality is, whether you believe it or not, one day you will stand before your maker and give an account. And so my question is, what have you done with Jesus Christ? Because he's the banquet. The banquet points us to him. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? I just want to give an opportunity. I do, we don't usually do this, but this, this message is just stirring my heart. If, if you've never fully trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, or maybe you prayed a prayer, you know, some years ago, but there's just been no change in your life, and you're just not sure. If you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? If you were to die within one hour from right now, can you say with 100% certainty that you will go to spend eternity with God in heaven? Can you answer that question? If you're not sure, this is God's opportunity for you to trust the Son, to in your heart turn from your wicked ways, turn from sin, and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've never done that or you're just not sure and you want to make a profession of faith, if you just want to stand, I know it's embarrassing, but it's a public thing. In the, in, the, in the Bible days, they would actually have you be baptized right on the spot sometimes, right? That was the point of baptism. It was kind of like altar calls, what we do in church today. But I just want to give that opportunity. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, if you'd like to stand before us, and trust me, we're going to celebrate. That's a banquet to celebrate, right? Well, I pray and trust that everyone here has made that decision to follow the Lord. Walk with your Savior. Feast on his word. Enjoy him. He's not a God who takes. He's a God who gives. See, he took our sin, but he gives eternal life. He's the one who's prepared the banquet for us. He wants to give us good things. Don't run from him. Turn to him. Because he's have every, he has everything prepared for us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these amazing pictures of what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for the banquet that you've prepared. And we realize, Lord, the party's just getting started. 
Lord, we've only tasted and seen just a little bit of the glory that awaits us. The kingdom that's coming. Being in your presence, Lord. Where there will be utter fullness of joy. Where there will be peace unspeakable, joy unspeakable. Where there will be no more tears, Lord. Where there will be no more pain, no more sorrow. Where there will be ever rejoicing in you. Lord, we've tasted just a glimpse, just a small little snippet of this banquet that that you've prepared for us, Lord. But would you give us a greater glimpse, Lord? Would you allow this banquet that you've prepared for us to impact our everyday lives? That, God, we would see that you desire good things for your children. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you that you are a gracious God. Even in your holiness and your righteousness, which you could have just destroyed us, Lord, you had mercy. And so we worship you and we praise you and we thank you. We give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.